Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. We all know that the original versions of fairy tales are so much darker than the sanitised ones that got handed down to us by the moralistic Victorians. Some authors choose to create a story in a fairy tale setting that is as brutal as the original tales themselves. But what about a tale that tries to weave in the murderous elements of the robber bridegroom and the dark deceptions of Melusine into a contemporary setting and a modern marriage? Rather than royalty, what if the billionaires of today were equivalent to the prince and princesses of the past, flaunting the same luxury and power? Joining us to consider such questions is Rashni Chokshi, whose most recent book, The Last Tale of the Flower Bride, has been described as unworldly, darkly gorgeous, and a unicorn tapestry of folklore, magic, and monsters. Thank you for joining us, Rashni. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your books, please? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Rashni. Hello. Uh, Let's see, a little bit about myself. You know, I oddly always get stumped on this because I want to go into things like I feel like I sound taller than I actually am, but I'm quite low to the ground. Um, I'm the author of multiple children's books and YA novels, uh, perhaps most popularly The Gilded Wolves and Arusha and the End of Time. And The Last Tale of the Flower Bride is my adult debut. It is... um, in many ways, the book that broke my brain, but I'm extraordinarily proud of it. And when I set out to write it, I knew that I wanted to write a gothic fairy tale. I wanted to honor the stories that I loved so much growing up, and I wanted to explore the hidey holes in stories. Um, a lot of Last Hell of the Flower Bride is inspired by Bluebeard. And if you're not familiar with the Bluebeard story, it's about a guy named Bluebeard who goes about murdering all of his wives until he is eventually stopped. What's curious to me is that it never answers the central question of why did he do that? What was it that he gained in such violence? And with Flower Bride, I wanted to reverse it and make the Bluebeard character the wife instead of the husband and to really dig deep into the, frankly, the the subtle violences in marriage which is an odd thing to say uh, because I I am very happily married. I've gotten a lot of questions about that, (laughs) but but I'm happily married. (laughs) Well, is it the violence in it that makes you want to put it as an adult novel? Did you not consider having written so many excellent YA novels that maybe you could tone it down a bit and bring it into a YA audience? Was there something about these tales, including the violence, maybe other aspects that you thought, you know what? No, this has got to be an adult book. That's a great question. You know, I um, I did, despite loving fairy tale young adult retellings, the idea of following a character beyond a certain age was very appealing to me. At the time when I started writing Flower Bride, I was actually, uh, gosh, what was it? My husband and I had just gotten married. We had been together for, gosh, fifteen or so years. We've been together since we were since we were kids in high school. And we moved back home to our home city after being away for about four years. And then at that same time, 
COVID happened. And it was so many things surrounding this huge year for us. It's our first year as newlyweds. And I remember thinking a lot about the shape-shifting that we have done as individuals, all the different people that we have been to one another since we were 15 years old. And that's when I realized that if I wanted to tackle this idea of a quote-unquote fairytale marriage, I couldn't do it with simply characters who stayed one age or that were only following th- them through a narrow portion of their lives. Although at the same time, it, it is very important. Um, Last Hill, the Flower Bride has two points of views. One is you know, from the perspective of the bridegroom, who is Indigo's husband. And the other perspective is Azur, who is Indigo's childhood best friend. And in this, in these two lenses, we get to watch these characters grow up in different ways. That's an interesting point you made about not wanting characters to kind of be just one age group, because you're quite right. The two veins of the story, the one by the bridegroom and one by Azur, they do intermingle. And when I was reading it, I was I was so fascinated to see how Indigo and Azure were going to grow up. And it made it that much a much stronger story to kind of see almost an end point and see where they'd got to and, you know, to balance it all. I thought it worked really well. Um, but one of the things that your novel is described as, as well as a fairy tale retelling, is a gothic novel. And gothic novels tend to be classified as such because of the mood that they evoke, sort of a, a general feeling of unease. So what specific tropes do you associate with a gothic story? And of those tropes, which did you want to work into your story and which did you want to keep the hell out of there? <laughs> oh, I, I love the gothic novel. I mean, that feeling of unease is, it's odd that we would chase that. You know, there's something about horror, for example, that is so immediately disconcerting. It's designed for us to be, to jump out of our skin. But what the Gothic novel achieves so well is the, almost the sensation of being hunted as you're reading the sensation that you want to keep looking over your shoulder, that something in your world is not quite lining up right. And I think that it's in these moments of unease where magic is really able to find us. And that's why I love it. One of the things I wanted to play with a lot was the sense of uh, atmosphere that is both opulent and sinister at the same time. I also really love this sense of, I don't even, I guess romantic claustrophobia is the best way to put it. I wanted to follow these individuals who wanted to make a world strictly that had themselves in it and not let anybody else in. I was curious about what came of that level of intimacy when it sort of, when, when you have true love, uh, but that it's warped, what happens to it? I mean, okay, love is quite central in the novel, um, but I wouldn't say in the healthiest of ways. <laughs> Very true. But, you know, I mean, th- there is love, though. You know, Indigo really loves her husband, you know, in her way, and he absolutely loves her. And a lot of, like, through his his eyes, you know, you see him talking about that love and how he f- he is conflicted about it and how it is maybe an unusual kind of love. Um, It's a love based on secrets and promises and kind of almost games, but not games in a way that we might sort of, you know, average like sitcom love triangle games. (laughs) It is something that we have in fairy tales. You see again and again that like, you know, people have to kind of make a promise of, and, and, you know, as you reference in the book multiple times, you reference these stories of, you know, this 
man or woman has said, okay, you can love me, but the only way to do so is if you fulfill this one promise. I mean, is this something that we can really have outside of fairy tales or is it, do you think there is something that is representative of actual relationships or do we just, is this just something for fairy tales? You know, I, I think it is something that very much exists outside of fairy tales. I think what fairy tales do is they make these difficult moments in our life these difficult episodes and marriages and relationships, it turns them physical. You know, for example, there's the popular story of the wife who has to free her husband by wearing out a pair of iron shoes. And she just has to wear them repeatedly until they fall off. You can find that in any marriage in the sense that loving someone is a choice that you make every single day. And sometimes that choice is very easy and sometimes it's not. And it's almost like this magic that you're tithing to it repeatedly of saying, I choose you, I love you, we're going to get through this. Whether or not it feels like wearing out iron shoes or it feels like stitching a sweater made out of thorns or perhaps it feels like biting your tongue and not saying anything for a year. I think there's a lot of sacrifices that, that, that love requires and what fairy tales do is they externalize something that I think we all feel at some point when we're when we are in long term relationships. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> it's always I, I, okay. So here's the thing: like I love kind of these gothic stories, like Rebecca, and those those really dark, eerie, traumatic kind of complicated and not necessarily happily ever after, but it's certainly like imperfect love stories. And, you know, this, your book felt very much on a par with them. Sometimes, it, you know, it's, it's funny because you have, say, rom-coms or like really kind of cheesy, but we all love them. You know, you have that happily ever after the, you know, something's going to happen and it's going to be somehow perfect and all the flaws are somehow going to be made into perfection by the end. And it's all wonderful and lovely. But at the same time, we also really love these imperfect love stories. And like, why is that? And, and what do you have to consider when you're writing kind of a, a, a troublesome, not entirely healthy love story <laughs> that you might not do when you're writing a happy rom-com Princess type Bride. Love story. <laughs> yes. Gosh. I mean, I, I adore rom-coms so much. There's something about them that ugh, it just, it, it's a warm, warm hug. And, you know, sometimes I'm often asked about you know, advice for writers, if there's any sort of craft books I look at or things that I recommend, I think there's a lot of great things out there. But my favorite one was actually recommended to me by Holly Black. And, and I promise it ties into this question. But it's called Romancing the Beat by Gwen Hayes, who is a romance author. And it is all about deconstructing what makes a romance a romance. And she says something really, really clever in it. And I mean, the whole book is full of wisdom. But what really resonated with me was a discussion that a romance is the movement of someone going from half-hearted to whole-hearted. It is not that the person completes them. It is that the person allows them to feel the full extent of their emotions. 
I really adore that. And I think that it's something we find even in a Gothic romance, which may have horror, like, sorry, even in the Gothic romance, which has a lot of elements of horror as well as romance, you're looking for something grotesque. You're looking for love, but with fear. Um, you're looking for love, but with disgust. And I think that's why we gravitate towards these stories as well, because we're looking for the monsters that we have to be reconciled with this pure love that we're still capable of feeling. And I, I think what those sort of messy romances achieve is they, they give us permission to be loving monsters. It's interesting that you're comparing it to a, a romance novel, because obviously in my mind, a romance novel is two people kind of moving forward. And like you say, completing, not completing each other, but complementing each other and helping the yeah. other person to grow as a person. But as I was reading through, I realized that one of your point of view narrators is simply called the bridegroom. So he's Indigo's husband and he's never named. He's just the bridegroom. And obviously this goes back to fairy tale things. But I wonder in a modern novel that is about romance, but also gothic romance, what prompted you to deny this man a name while also making him a narrator? I think what I was trying to do at the time was really honor the the reason why a story like Bluebeard continued to entrance me even years later. The only one who's named is Bluebeard. I don't, at least I don't recall any retellings in which the wives were given names. And that was really interesting to me. It played with this idea that what we remember the most is sort of the the prominence of someone's monstrosity. Like currently, I think that pop culture is experiencing a, a sort of gross fascination with serial killers, right? There's how many more shows do we need about Jeffrey Dahmer or, um, you know, whoever else. And yet, even in those titles, we see the villain um, being named, that th that is the person who gets to hold on to their name. Everybody else doesn't. And it's something that's annoyed me, but it was also something I wanted to play with. And so in the idea of, you know, gender bending Bluebeard and turning the Bluebeard-like character into Indigo, uh, that's why I just decided that the bridegroom would not have a name. I have to ask, in your head, does he have a name? Did you ever give him a name or is he the bridegroom even in your head? In my head, he has a name, but I will not share it. Oh, no. <laughs> very wise, very wise. <laughs> so this sort of ties in nicely with another question we had, which is about the fact that gothic narratives, they often find the heroine in distress, um, in need of both physical and emotional rescuing. But in your novel, it's everyone around the heroine who needs rescuing, or so it appears to begin with anyway. So why did you decide to alter the relative power positions of the characters? Because uh, it's just a really interesting reversal. Thank you. I, I think, again, it, it, was, it was an interest in women who are more than one thing. I, I've, of course, I love like the heroine who's trying to figure something out, who has to outsmart someone who might be more villainous than her. But I am very, very interested in monstrous women. And it's something that appears at the very beginning of the novel when the bridegroom, who is a scholar of mythology and fairy tales, is also discussing this. He's talking about 
the allure of sirens and mermaids, these feminine creatures who are almost half beast as well. And this idea that when you look at them, you cannot decide if you're disgusted. You can't decide if you're, if you desire them, what you want from them. Do you want to tame them? Do you want to control them? Do you yourself want to be controlled by a creature like this? Indigo is an homage to all of those things. I think that particular when we consider individuals who are very alluring, that are walking enigmas, when it's a woman, there's something that is underlying, there's a sense of underlying danger about her. There, why is she holding, why is she withholding secrets? What is she not telling you? What doesn't she want you to know? And that was really, really interesting to play with because I've read so many stories where it's the male character who is this labyrinth of a human being, but I really, really wanted to see what it would look like if it was a woman instead. I love that you've got monstrous women because honestly, I feel like we don't get enough of them. And when we do, they are completely caricatured. And, you know, going back to, I mentioned earlier, you know, that there were lots of echoes of of books like Rebecca. And again, you have you know, in something like that, it's it's the man who's like not telling the truth or he's, there is, you know, gaslighting and it, those secrets and lies, but it's always from the male perspective. And there's always so many of those psychological abusive things going on. And it's, it's just so interesting to see that from the other side because we just never get to see it. And so thank you for that, for one thing. <laughs> um, but when it comes to to writing like the psychological distress of a male character compared to a female one, I just wondered if there was anything, you know, really different when you had to to approach that because obviously we have a lot of sort of tropes and I guess societal norms, you know, where, you know, men supposedly respond to things differently and where you have, you know, psychological distress in women, you know, they, they kind of become the very much the damsel in distress. They can faint or they'll get overwhelmed, you know, pass me my smelling salts, but you don't have that sort of same kinds of expectations with a male character. So, is there anything different when you're designing the psychological distress and torment of a male character than a female character? That is a wonderful question. You know, I, I didn't actually think about how much different it would be for male versus female um, in distress. And I think that that's because for me, a lot of a lot of what I'm writing from when I think about what my characters across all of my stories fear the most, it, it doesn't really make a difference who or what they identify as because it all comes down to love and the fear of losing love or the fear of not being deserving of love. And I think that's something we see across uh, gender identity. It's, it's just a fundamentally human thing wanting to be accepted and wanted for who you are, and then being desperate not to lose it. 
I think that the bridegroom is an, was an interesting character to write from the beginning because he's very comfortable with this role that is otherwise quite passive. He is comfortable with having a rich wife who's going to take care of him. He doesn't mind that she makes more than him. He doesn't mind because he feels as though what he's offering is something to- totally different. Um, and I suppose that's odd because not many men are like that. There's, I, I remember growing up, even just you hear certain things from neighbors or aunts and uncles about, well, you don't want to emasculate somebody by talking too loudly about your own accomplishments or anything like that. But the bridegroom is so honestly damaged in a way that he, those things matter less to him. And it's not that, oh, you have to be damaged in order to not care about toxic masculinity or anything like that. But it's ultimately that he's just, he's so far removed from what we would consider, I I don't know, male insecurities because he's been grappling with this hole in his heart ever since he was a child. Maybe, okay, I don't, (laughs) putting in my own sort of social norms and expectations here, but there is a little element of, of having him as an academic kind of immediately takes away certain masculinity norms that you might expect. Right. He's not swaggering into this. You know, he's, he almost approaches Indigo with, uh, you know, I was thinking actually a lot about the character of Galahad from Arthurian mythology, someone who is humble and who is open and kind of innocent in this way. And is in that for, for that reason alone, the only one who gets to see or touch the Holy Grail, you know, like you, it requires this, I don't even know what the right word or right way to describe it, but he he approaches her with a sense of reverence rather than um, lust. And I think that's kind of, I think that's really important for their relationship. That's very true because when I read it, there was a lot of sex in it, (laughs) but it was never graphic. It was never, um, I want to say seedy, but that's not right. It was never the focus. It was always their emotions. And like you say, how he felt before and after rather than during. So yeah, that was a a really interesting distinction you made. I hadn't noticed that until you pointed it out. You know, it's, it's funny because as I was writing it, um, my husband who, my husband read it, uh, as I wrote pretty much every single chapter and he was always very proud of me, always very encouraging. Um, and he's extremely Scorpio. Like it just, that man is just a walking stereotype of that Zodiac sign. And he was always pushing me to put it deeper and darker and go explore the hidey holes of these characters' minds. But perhaps the most hilarious and boy thing that my husband said as he was reading, particularly the bridegroom's chapters, was that the sex did not sound believable from a male point of view. And I was like, why? Or can you help me edit it? And his, his, his literally, his response was just like, there's no mention of her tits. There's like, there's nothing of that. Well, why, why isn't he talking? There's so many feelings. What about her boobs? And, uh, that was my brilliant <laughs> husband's takeaway of it. And it, um, well, it's, it's, it bothers me. <laughs> I had to go back in and write it. <laughs> I have to say boobs are very pretty to look at, but it, it strikes me. You should have a look online with the, um, the wonderful, flips that some authors have done where they've written men entering a room or in a sex scene but for oh they're so from, funny yeah <laughs> you know what I mean flipping it around it's so funny I love it <laughs> 
I feel like since we're talking about gender and, you know, the difference, the different tropes, the different stereotypes that these genres, you know, uh, popularize, um, it's interesting that, you know, in most traditional Gothic romances, um, while the protagonist is often female, the action is driven by the male character's dark past coming back to haunt the couple. Um, why did you want to flip this narrative so that both their pasts were troubling and had a devastating effect on their marriage. I think part of the reason I I wanted to flip it was because Indigo was very interesting to me and she was interesting as an adult and who you are as an adult is obviously the consequences of what happened to you or what you were engaged with as a child and as, as, and as an adolescent. Um, And the thing that I really wanted to explore, it came into play because of Indigo and Azura's relationship. I think that for for many, many women, when we consider these formative friendships in our lives, there's this blurry aspect to us um, in these adolescent years. You know, I... I remember at least with me and my best friends that I would almost take on their identity. I would just start acting like them or they would start acting like me or we would wear one another's clothes. We would just, we were almost one, like our our whole friendship group just sort of blended into this one, I don't even know, roving girl, you know? And that's, that sense of, the things that you perhaps may not have liked about yourself when you're growing up, the sort of embarrassing things you said, the opinions you had, I I still am haunted by photos of me going through my horrible emo phase. And, you know, you you think about these things as like, well, that's sort of cringeworthy and um, embarrassing, but what if it was, what if it was more, you know, we say, I, I, I feel often that, in those teenage years, we're all a little bit feral. You know, you're running around and you're doing fun things with your friends and you're not quite human yet. You really are on this cusp of childhood to adulthood. And and that's a really extraordinarily magical time where you feel just invulnerable from the rest of the world. The, The realities of life can't touch you. And I wanted to play with that past, I wanted to see how it could come back and haunt someone if they felt that there was something really monstrous about themselves that they hadn't reconciled with in their adulthood. You mentioned there um, about how sort of you're running around the sort of the childhood and teenage years, and I don't know whether you meant to say you're not adult yet, but you actually said that you're not human yet, which I thought was a really nice, interesting little insight to um, childhood and growing up and, and those liminal spaces where. You, you not, you're not quite a person, but like you say, it's so easy to perhaps tip over into being a monster. You know, this it isn't just about growing up to be an adult; it's about growing up to be a good person or a bad person or a monster. Right. I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that resonated with you. It's you know, I, I, I've been so fortunate with writing children's novels and getting to run around with a bunch of kids and do school visits, and I come from a large family. And it really does seem like I love my little nieces and nephews so much, but they really are like not quite human. And I completely understand how someone like them is able to fall into fairy world. And it's, I, I wonder, I was talking to a friend about this 
a while ago. Like what, what is that first moment that made you realize you were growing up? What was the dominating emotion is sometimes we associate it with our first love or, um, you know, a crush or something like that. But she and I had the same response and it was the idea of shame. The first time that you feel shame and extraordinarily guilt over who you are or what you might've done is the moment when childhood starts sort of falling off of you. And that was really sad to me. Um, and even sort of reminded me of like the story of Adam and Eve, like how they realized they were naked and then they felt shame, like something like that. This innocence is gone and it's almost always associated with that feeling. And I, I think that for a lot of women, we are haunted by what we might've done in the past that we are ashamed of. And I, I wanted to really engage with what that looks like. I've just been um, thinking as well, you've got like, again, with kind of all this flipping of the, this traditional stories that we hear. And I, I found it also really interesting because you have the bridegroom, you know, not, I don't want to say jealous. He's not jealous, but he is curious. And it's that, you know, I want to ask, I can't ask, but it's also a little bit of, I feel playing into, again, those kinds of social norms where we kind of look down on the jealous woman and it's more of a, you know, a thing linked with hysteria and you know women who are too emotional and all this sort of stuff. And he, I think it's very interesting how we see into his mind. So we know what he isn't saying as much as what he is saying. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious because you had your husband as, you know, kind of a beta reader. Um, obviously from my perspective, I found that, you know, interesting as a, a female reader. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm curious uh, if he had any thoughts on, on how the, you know, the, the man is responding to those things and and the kinds of representation of a side of masculinity that doesn't often get explored in narratives. You know, it's, it's never something that we, I guess, articulated. Uh, and I think it has to do with the sense that with all those characters, um, I felt like I was splintering myself and myself into three different people, which makes it sound like I, I am a terrible, terrible human being. I'm not. Um, but, it, but it's like that sense of, you know, where have you been in your life where perhaps what you wanted out of a relationship wasn't what it actually was? Like, were you able to recognize the warning signs? Were you able to recognize when you yourself are doing something fairly toxic? Um, and then in the perspective of the bridegroom, this, I guess hyper observation of if I'm in a story, what character am I right now? So I suppose it doesn't satisfactorily answer the question, but no, I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't thinking too much about the commentary, I suppose, on gender with, with the bridegroom, or at least not to that extent. I think it's just, you know, it's one of those things like when it is something that you don't see a lot and, and it is a flipping and it's trying, it's, it's like trying something new. And it's, it, it just struck me as very interesting because it's not something you see from, a you know, portrayed from a male perspective very often. And, and that kind of, 
the insecurity, the questioning, the I want to know more, but I can't because then what will she think of me or what will happen? And and it's just not something we we get to see with male characters very often. So, you know, it was, it was yeah, it was just interesting to see. That's all. <laughs> well, I'm glad. You know, and at least when my husband and I were talking about it and it was, it just always comes back to that conversation of what would we do to not lose love? What would we do to hold on to it? Um, and how, how small would you make yourself? How, what pieces of your personality would you carve off because you're so afraid of being left behind? And, um, it really, it was just thinking about it from a, any human's response, but I, you know, it's, it's curious because I, I am really interested in the male characters who are softer in some ways, even as they're going through something quite harrowing. One of my favorite uh, books that's in this sort of vein is The Changeling by Victor Lavelle. It's written from the perspective of a first-time father. And it is, it's harrowing. And it is, it's soft and it's squishy. And it was so interesting to me to see this conversation about parenthood from the perspective of a father rather than um, the narrative of motherhood, which we which we have so much more of, you know? I did really like all of the flipping of narrative you had for all the different genders within it and bringing the fairy tales to a sort of a, a modern audience. But one thing that I found just fascinating was the class distinctions, which played such a large part in the novel. So Indigo's wealth sets her apart in a way that makes her seem almost otherworldly to those around her. And it made me think of when you had the older fairy tales and you did have the prince and the princesses that are completely separate from the little peasants who run around and have their own little fairy tales going on. So I wondered if you include this huge class distinction issue as in your novel as a commentary on society or on fairy tales or a little bit of both. Yeah, well, I'm. thank you for picking up on that. I think absolutely. It, it was, I was always very, very interested in how the people in fairy tales were either the poorest of the poor or they were the richest of the rich. And there's almost no representation of the middle class. <laughs> And like someone who's sort of making it along in life and things are fine and then they stumble into fairy world or whatever. There's always either an excess of want or a, uh, a dearth of need, you know? And that was, that was something I wanted to play with. And I also remember, you know, growing up, growing up in the Southern United States, I, uh, I was very, it was very impressionable to me sometimes when I was, I went to a private school and um, my parents were wonderful, extremely supportive, but very, they were, they're not flashy or showy people. And I remember going to like a, a friend's house when I was a kid whose family was very well off. And the sort of, I, I don't even know how to describe it. The excesses of things, toys that a whole room of toys that never got played with, that just were there. Things that I desperately wanted as a kid and didn't have. And the sort of flippancy with cars and with clothes and all of it, it seemed to me, it really felt as if it was another world. You know, I remember seeing jewelry just strewn about on the countertops or whatever that her mom was eventually going to come back to. And she had like three older sisters and they, you know, it, 
it was odd. There really was like a bowl of jewelry that they just sort of dipped their hands into and came out with like fistfuls of pearls or something. And I was just, I was blown away by that. Like who lives like this? Um, and yet I, I find it, I find that people watching of, uh, those who run in those kind of circles, very, very interesting. Um, a while ago, my husband and I were, were traveling abroad and we were at this, one of those painfully swanky bars where you just feel that every time you inhale, you're, you're losing money. Like you haven't even done anything or ordered anything to drink. You're just automatically hemorrhaging cash. And on the menu, it was so weird. It was the opportunity to get a diamond martini. And it was something that I ended up putting up and putting in the book. But what happened was they would make you this top shelf gin or vodka martini. And while the bartender is making this drink for you um, at your table, there's a jeweler who comes by with this ginormous velvet box full of diamonds. And you get to select the diamond as then dropped into your glass. And I suppose you can just do whatever you want with it. And it was outrageously expensive. Of course, I wasn't going to get it. But I was like, who the heck gets this? Who would... Who would do this? Um, and how weird to, not weird, but, you know, this, what do you want in life if something like that is the sort of thing you can throw money on on a Tuesday night? Who are you? And to me, it, it is, they do seem, uh, what they do seem unearthly because they're so out of touch. And the same way that our fascination with fairies or demigods or something like that are also out of touch because if they don't want anything and they don't need anything, then what scares them? What makes them have any desire to be held accountable for their decisions if they feel that the world doesn't touch them? Um, so that was, that was one of the things I really wanted to play with in the book. I have to say, I'm absolutely blown away by that story of the diamond martini because I, when I read it, I was like, wow, who comes up with that idea? That's that's an amazing way of putting fairy tales into the modern world. <laughs> I didn't realize it was actually real. <laughs> real. I genuinely, I genuinely it read it and real. thought, oh my goodness. Uh, wow, no, that, it was real. <laughs> that really does make, it's like what I said at the introduction with billionaires basically being the new prince and princesses. Don't mind, you know, Prince Harry and Prince William and all this jazz. It's like, no, it's, if you look at the billionaires, they're living the lifestyle that you would see only in fairy tales. It's very strange. Absolutely. Yeah. There was this article a while back and I think it was in the New York times and it was talking about the rise of billionaire romances and, um, just the sense of romanticizing people who truly the rules don't apply to them. And I was really, really fascinated by that. And I'm pretty disgusted, um, but like, but fascinated nonetheless. Okay, so we've kind of come full circle from talking about fairy tales all the way through to, to modern life. And I would just like to take a moment to thank you so much, Rashni, for coming on and talking to us about dark fairy tales and dark modern life and strange marriages and diamonds in vodka and all sorts of things. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was so, so fun. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.